What's up, everybody? Thank you for tuning into Demo Day. I'm your host, Sean Goldfan, CEO of Coefficient Labs. And on today's show, we'll be interviewing Eddie Berenger, the co-founder and CEO of Copper Banking. At Copper Banking, their purpose is to build the first financially successful generation. He is an experienced founder and product leader with deep understanding of Generation Z, parents, schools, everything in between. He previously co-founded SnapRaise, the second fastest growing company in the Northwest and number 46 in America. On today's show, we cover top advice for startup founders, pros and cons of working at a bootstrap startup versus a fully invested startup, and reasons why you shouldn't raise money until you absolutely need to. Without further ado, let's jump into Demo Day. Eddie, thank you so much for joining us today on Demo Day. Yeah, really happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Eddie, for you know, a lot of the guests, uh, a lot of the guests, a lot of the viewers that listen or tune into Demo Day, um, typically we bring venture capitalists on the show to talk about what it's like to invest in startups and founders and what they look for in the startups that they invest in and the founders they invest in. Uh, but today we're going to flip it on its head a little bit and look at things from the perspective of the founder. Uh, Copper is one of you know the faster growing fintech startups, especially in the banking space. And I'm excited to get to know you, your company, and what got you here. So I uh, really appreciate you joining the show. Uh, maybe you could start by just telling you know people listening a little bit more about who you are. Um, I, I know in our earlier talk, you mentioned that uh, you weren't born uh, in Seattle. You didn't live always in, uh, you know, where you currently at. So maybe talk to us a little bit about, you know, where you came from and uh, and how we got to, you know, to Copper. Yeah, yeah, great question. So, um, yeah, so I was actually born in Bogota, Colombia. Uh, immigrated to the United States when I was five years old, um, and really kind of saw firsthand, um, you know, kind of what what the enablement and really the the lack of tooling around financial education really look like. Um, and so, you know, what we built at Copper is really the first of its kind digital bank built specifically for teenagers, um, really with a goal of teaching them uh, good financial habits. And so, you know, kind of the background on myself and, and how we got here. Um, I've been working with my co-founder for the last 14 years building companies. Um, not really sure why he still likes me, but we have very complementary skill sets. And, you know, for us, building a large sustainable business that has a positive impact on a lot of people's lives is really what gets us going. Um, and so really how we got into this space was by way of the previous company we founded uh, that was called SnapRaise. And so really this was around the time uh, that crowdfunding was getting a lot of traction. So platforms like Kickstarter and GoFundMe and what we did was we built the first digital platform so that teens, parents, and schools didn't have to go door to door and do that really fun process of selling a candy bar or a magazine, um, which I don't know if you've had the, the fun experience. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I sold magazines, candy bars, all, all of the above. Yeah, yeah. And so that's, uh, you know, that's, that's the industry that we really revolutionized. And, and for me, I noticed a couple things. Um, I have led product and was in schools all the time and just realized that, you know, there was a massive lack of tooling around financial education really before it matters most. 
um, before, you know, teens are going to become adults, have the opportunity, um, you know, the negative opportunity to fall victim to predatory credit. And I just thought that there was a, a real opportunity for us to really build the first financially successful generation. Um, and so it was really that paired with the uh, really unique distribution strategy that we kind of built at SnapRaise um, that gave us the conviction, conviction to start Copper. Um, and so, yeah, fast forward to now, um, you know, we uh, are, are fully off and running um, and actually raised a seed round back in, um, in March of, of, of last year and, and uh, have been really scaling the business since. <clears throat> now, one of, you know, I, I want to ask you more about what it was like for you to fundraise, especially during, you know, the very beginning of COVID. And I, I think uh, there's a lot of lessons and I'm sure stories that could be told around what that was like. But before diving uh, into that journey, can you talk to us a little bit more about like your early, early childhood? I, I know you mentioned that you grew up in uh, in Colombia and maybe talk about, you know, what was life like for you back then? You know, were you always a great student? Were you into business? Were you into sports? Like what what were the early days of Eddie, Eddie like? Yeah, nice. Uh, yeah, so really taking me back. Um, yeah, so, you know, as I mentioned, we, we'd immigrated to the United States. Um, you know, I, I think as, as a young child in, in Colombia, it's, it's obviously a much, a, a much different world um, where, you know, I think you have, uh, you know, a completely different construct. And so, you know, for me coming to the United States, my mom was super transformative. Um, she, you know, came to the U.S. not knowing any English. Um, and had, you know, I really feel like I owe her a lot from my business sense perspective. Um, you know, we came to the United States with, with not a whole lot. And, you know, she had really been able to pioneer her way in, in the medical field um, and, and it got to a place where she, you know, kind of showed me really the, the value of hard work and being able to just the tenacity of, of building a company from the ground up. Um, and so I really owe a lot of, I think, uh, kind of our, our roots to her in, in doing that. <clears throat> and when you were watching, you know, your mom building her, her business and just like building her life, did you know at a very young age that you wanted to be an entrepreneur and you wanted to start your own business? Or was that something that sort of came to you along the way? Like, did you go to school for business or, or what was that part of your journey like? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, and I, the realization moment for me, um, and I won't mention the name of the company, but um, I got out of school and I was a, fin I, I was a financial analyst for a year, um, let's just say at a cable company. Um, and so quite funnily enough, I had this realization that, you know, I was in, if you've seen the movie Office Space, yeah. I was in like the cube farm, right? It was, you show up there and I had a realization one day, which was like, okay, if I work really, really hard, I can, in two-year increments, continue to move my office closer to the window, right? Um, and it was just this realization that um, that was just not the way I wanted to, to really build my life. And, and so, you know, the first business we started, um, for me, was just this was massive realization of, of fulfillment, right? I mean, the scrappiness and the, the highs and lows of building a company, um, obviously, are really difficult, but it just became really clear from that day on that I was not going to work for anybody else um, and that I wanted to, to build my own companies. So let me ask you a question then as like, as you build out the infrastructure of the team and as you guys continue to raise, 
you know, your series A and your series B and you keep growing and growing, you get all these teammates. How do, whether it be you and Copper or me in Coefficient Labs or any other earlier stage startup that has limited team, like how do you avoid that cubicle mindset, right? Like, like, like at some point that company probably was young and scrappy and hungry and, and something, I, I mean, I don't know, but like, what do you, how do you avoid getting there as you get more and more and more mature? Any, any thoughts or like anything that you're kind of thinking in your own head around culture? Yeah. So this, I'm really glad you asked this. So basically um, this was something that we really kind of, I think didn't do a great job early in my previous company. And so, you know, just for a little context, we scaled SnapRaise to over 300 employees, um, tens of million in recurring revenue. Uh, and, and really, you know, for us, um, what we kind of figured out a little bit later on was just we, the, the importance of guiding principles. And so, you know, typically, can you explain, can you explain the premise of guiding principles? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, we have, we have several of copper. Um, and again, you know, really at the end of the day, it's something that we got started from the first day we started the business. Whereas at the previous company, we scaled to 700 employees, several hundred employees, and we didn't actually do that till like year four. And, and really, you know, the, the re, really the, the importance of it is that when you bring new people into a business, even from the, the first day that you start, you know, it has to be a litmus test that, um, you know, you really use for every new hire. And to have, to have it ingrained in the culture that you build is really, I think, evident when you see people, um, you know, use those in, in the weekly life of, of the business, right? So one of ours is just one is greater than zero, which is one of my favorites, which, you know, really has to do with, um, the speed at which you need to move. But when we have, when we talk about one is greater than zero, we also talk about where one is greater than zero goes wrong. Meaning, you know, um, initiative balance with good judgment is really what we're talking about there. But at, at the point at which, you know, we're not sitting there and overanalyzing every single thing, you know, agree and commit. Um, and so I think the importance of it is in what we did literally the first week at Copper was we defined these and we talked about them as a management team. Um, and so I think those things in combination with the fact that we built a really, really good core founding team that um, just believes in the mission of the business. And I think that is really the springboard to, to build a big sustainable company just from that guiding principles level in the beginning. How do you advise, because I, I feel like you and your founder having worked together now for 14 years, like you guys have already sort of like a built in trust and kind of a, uh, almost like a, a language that you could speak to each other. And so I could imagine that like when you went into the second business with Copper and you went in for that very first conversation around setting the guiding principles, what was that conversation like? Like, how do you, if someone was to come to you and they're like, hey, Eddie, I saw your podcast. I really liked what you were talking about around setting up these guiding principles. I've never had that conversation with my co-founder before. What, what should we do? Like, how do we facilitate it? Was it at a location? Did you guys go out to dinner? Was it on a retreat? Like, how do you create space for something so important for, and you know, when, when people don't know how to take that first step, like, what do you recommend they do? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, and kind of the way you alluded to for us, 
it was a lot easier because we've been together for so long, right? And so a lot of these things we, you know, was, was kind of um, unspoken as far as, you know, how we, how we think about our guiding principles. But, you know, I think my recommendation would be um, really start, uh, an easy way is to start in a couple, couple of different capacities. The first is just, you know, as people, what's important to you, right? I mm. mean, uh, like we are humble is a really basic one because my partner is like the most humble person you'll ever meet. Um, you know, we just a funny story is that, you know, we had, a, and it might be a good segue later to talk about fundraising at my previous business, we bootstrapped it to, to a pretty large scale and had this, like this experience where we had, you know, 30 VCs with term sheets, right. We had like this, so much momentum and success and, and he was the humble guy that like felt like the deal wasn't going to close <laughs> right the whole time and didn't want to tell anybody about it. And like, I guess, so my point is, um, you know, I think, I think it was easy for us initially, but and getting started um, is really what we did was we said, what are the, we started with the list of things we didn't mistakes. We didn't want to make again. Right. So we just said, Hey, look, like really simply, what are, what are the things that we screwed up last time? Um, and how were those really rooted in, you know, core cultural issues? Um, and let's just have a quick conversation of the mistakes we don't want to make again. Um, but yeah, like, as I mentioned kind of earlier, just having a, a very like honest and candid conversation of what matters to you as a person um, and what other people do you want to have around you really helped us kind of get that conversation going. I think that's super interesting. And like I, one of my favorite aspects of, you know, hosting demo day and talking to founders and VCs like yourself is like sometimes you'll have those conversations that sort of like stick around in your head for like a long while after. And, and like, I think what you just, you know, spoke about is really resonating with me a lot because I think that as entrepreneurs and founders, um, um, oftentimes the rhetoric is that we need to be really clear on our vision of where we want to go and it's, it's a, often you'll hear that, like, you really need to focus on where do you want to go? Where do you want to go? But a lot of the times founders, I feel like end up holding themselves back or really anyone, not just founders, like any human ends up holding themselves back because they get into these patterns or these habits that they don't really recognize are happening. And they're like, man, I keep making the same mistakes sort of over and over again. But I, I feel like the, why it's resonating with me, what you said, is it's sort of like if you're only ever focused on where you want to get to, but you don't ever take time to bring to the top of your mind where you don't want to get to, then like you kind of may end up like somehow getting back into these patterns. Whereas if you like take the time to like really write out and visualize and have like, this is what the, the mistakes I don't want to do again. It's almost like you've taken it out of your subconscious put it right there in front of you as if it's like an OKR or a goal or whatever. And it becomes like really top of mind. So anyway, I just, I think that's like really interesting uh, to think of it like that. And so after you have like really allowed yourself to noodle around, like, where do I not want to go or what do I want to avoid? What's like then the next step? Like I can imagine in that scenario, you and your partner are like, cool. Like, we just had like an hour long conversation and now he has a couple bullet points that matter to him. You have a couple bullet points that matter to you. What's sort of then the next step from there? Yeah. So, you know, from, for there, 
what we actually did before we went down setting the guiding principles was actually went up a level in the clouds to what is our transformative purpose, right? And so what we did was we said, hey, look, our, so what that is at Copper, and it's an audacious one is, you know, we really want to build the first financially successful generation. Um, and really that is our purpose that is really the reason why people join um, our team. And so what we did was we kind of went up a level and said, okay, here are the things that are important to us. Here are the things, here are the things that we don't want to do again. And then let's map up to like, what are we doing? Like, why are we here? Right. Um, like why, why do we actually exist? And so we set that as a leadership group. Um, and then from there, you know, I mean, tactically it was full on sticking out session, right. Where we kind of put up, you know, after we had, uh, kind of our purpose as a company set, really kind of those things that were important to each of us and started to map out, you know, where there was commonalities and just had conversations, right? Um, and so I think what was really cool about that is from an early leadership team perspective, um, I mean, that early group is what's going to drive the business forward, right? Those are the people that are going to make it happen or not make it happen. And so I think you know, being, we were, we were inclusive of that process with the leadership team, just because we had built a pretty strong bench out of the gate. Um, and so from there, yeah, we all got back together and said, okay, cool. How do these things down below map to, to us, you know, actually realizing this purpose? So let's, let's go back in time, you know, a little bit. I, I, if possible, I'd, I'd like to spend a little bit, uh, you know, a little bit more time talking about your first business that you built and, and, I mean, growing completely bootstrapped, did you eventually end up taking funding or was the entire company bootstrapped from the ground up? Yeah, so the last company um, was, was pretty much entirely bootstrapped. Um, we uh, took one check from our football coach. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so he wrote us a $200,000 check. And I think the funny thing about that check um, was that, you know, <laughs> It was, it was an equity investment, but we knew if we failed, we were going to have to pay him back anyway. Um, so, <laughs> so we definitely got best of both worlds um, and debt did. did What's the, you got to give us the story behind this. So like, like, like in your heads, wait, so did he give you guys the check at a time when you had nothing, 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 or did he give it to you after you had a little something? So we had a proof of concept, um, but we were at a point where, um, you know, we had, we had engineering bills to, to pay. Um, and how so, did this conversation come up with your coach? <laughs> um, so lucky enough, he's my dad's best friend. Um, and so, you know, I think we had, uh, obviously the inside track there. Um, but yeah, he, you know, it was, it happened in the living room. Um, it was, I won't say the exact words, but he's just basically said, don't F this up. <laughs> um, uh, in, in a pretty interesting, you know, dynamics as far as kind of him relating this to his daughter's education. Um, I think the really cool part about the story is, uh, you know, he 200xed his investment or more, um, and so it was it was a successful uh, situation. But yeah, it was it was a little bit nerve wracking. Um, and I think as a founder, that's that's the place that I love to be as kind of sick as that might sound is like fully committed back against the wall. And now, now talk to us a little bit about like your POV on 
taking friends and family and the pressure that that brings versus taking investor money and the pressure that that brings. Because I would imagine, like you said, on one end, you know, you sort of feel that like personal responsibility where you're like, oh man, if I lost the money, I'd, I'd have to figure out how to get it back to him. Whereas the other has a lot more maybe strings attached in other areas where I would imagine this coach uh, wasn't so like in the weeds or invested in a lot of your decisions, whereas now you may have, you know, other shareholders. So what, what's that uh, kind of process been like for you? Or, or has that been, um, you know, an area that you've had to uh, navigate through? Yeah. So, you know, the previous business, as I mentioned, kind of in that story, that that was that was pretty, pretty much the only friends and family we've ever done. Um, and so, you know, I think like uh, as, as when we thought, of, thought about building copper, we knew um, that this was an even bigger opportunity and that we would need VC backing. And so the difference there is we, we raised money out of the gate versus at SnapRaise, the previous company. I mean, we were pretty profitable and grew, you know, only took, took money after five years. Um, and so we're obviously in a, a much different situation than, um, you know, I think like the, there, there definitely was the mental overhead of, of taking that, that coach's money. Um, but I mean, I think ultimately as a founder, I still feel very personally responsible to the shareholders. Right. And that like, if it, if I'm not fully committed to the problem that we're solving and, and, you know, as a founder, everybody knows that this is a 24 hour job. Um, and you don't feel that, I think, onus in a sense, maybe it's not the right situation. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, definitely it's a little different when you're in a living room with somebody that is your dad's best friend. Um, yeah, well, I think about it more, I think about it more from like, um, it, it, while I definitely know that there's many, many, many VCs that do not get involved and try to stay fairly hands-off, I just would Feel, at least personally, and this might just be me, I just would feel a little different knowing it was a personal relationship. Well, like you said, like I'd feel so personally invested in helping this, this friend out. Whereas if it's, it's, you know what it's, it, to me, it's like having a roommate. It's like living, it's like, you know, you, you sort of like live with like your best friend in the whole world and you have that trust versus some random person that you don't really know them. And, and like, there, there just feels like it's a little bit of a, of a disconnect. Um, but, but, you know, something that I think I wanted to ask you about that is really important is so when in your first business, you grew, grew, grew. And then at some point you decided after such growth to then maybe seek venture. Whereas for copper, you decided to go the venture route, you know, fairly like quickly right out of the gate. What, what goes into your strategy and your mindset uh, and this could be either from personal experience or just like how you would recommend other startups. But like, what is, again, step one? Like, you're just, you're like, cool. Like, I, I've got the idea. Uh, I don't necessarily have a bunch of institutional investors that I've worked with in the past. I've only really worked with friends and family and maybe, a, but so it's like, you're kind of at this place where you want to go and enter this world of VC. Yep. how do you think about it? Are you thinking about introductions? Are you thinking about cold outreach? Like what goes through your head when you're literally building the very first list of who's going to fundraise this business off the ground? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I think even before the list 
the list building happens is is really having I think an honest um, assessment of like what the capital needs are, right? Um, and so like you how know, come? What, or like bring us like unpackage that a little bit. Why? Why is that yeah. so important? Yeah. So like for example, at our previous company, we were able to reinvest every dollar of revenue with a really quick payback. Um, and so the way that that's changed for us with copper is, um, you know, we, there's a lot of technical infrastructure and blocking and tackling that we just had to do to play the game, right. Um, from a, from a banking perspective. And so, you know, we knew that what it would take to get from A to B was a little bit more capital intensive. Um, and so just, you know, I think, any, at least for me and as a founder, especially in the early days, if you're able to bootstrap it, bootstrap it. Um, you know, I think it also, I think, matches to the size of the opportunity. Um, you know, we've seen really good early traction at Copper to where we feel like we've got channels that we're ready to scale. Um, and so, you know, I think that also plays into where you're at in that process. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's kind of just taking a look at like, what, what can you get done with the least amount of money? And is that gonna help you A, validate this idea to a place where you have conviction in going to pitch investors in it? Um, and so kind of that's a little bit of how I think it was before and it is now and how that's a bit different. You said, you just said a minute ago, if you can bootstrap it, bootstrap it. And as someone now that has experience having bootstrapped your first company, you know, big enough to know whether or not you like bootstrapping and now having investors, why, why was that the first thing that came out of your mouth? If you could bootstrap it, bootstrap it. Like what, what are, what message are you trying to deliver to those that are on the fence about either or? Well, so, I mean, from the most basic level, I can talk about the difference in the fundraising process, right? So like when we, for context at the previous company, we also kind of operated in a bit of a niche market where people didn't understand that fundraising in America is a multi-billion dollar market, um, which sounds crazy, right? Uh, as far as, you know, the, the cookie door magazines that, are, that were changing hands before we came along. Um, and so, you know, we were able to, in that context, reinvest and reinvest. Um, and the process there was, you know, we, we got to a point where it was just a ton of inbound, right? I mean, we, we, we basically got to a point where there was just a ton of investor interest versus the, and, and that's what I would recommend, right? Is getting to a place where you've got a validated profitable business as you can, because it makes fundraising way easier. Right. So, so sorry to sorry to sl uh, slow us down on this point, but I feel like people that have been through this know what you're talking about. But for those that haven't been through the process, intellectually, it makes sense that you would want to have like grow and grow and grow, and then investors are coming to you. But can you just talk like from a valuation perspective and kind of like an under the hood, like why does it matter that like you don't raise money until you absolutely need to, or until you're at a certain point, like what for, for founders that are thinking about raising their first pre-seed or seed round, why is it important to keep blowing the, the bubble up as big as you can before taking money on? Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, um, the earlier you take on investment, you know, if, if you're thinking about, you know, kind of market dilution of, you know, 18 to 30%, um, the earlier you take it on and the less milestones you've achieved, you know, the, the larger stake you're giving up in your company, right? 
and by no means am I advocating for not taking venture money on ever. I mean, we, we have, and it's been really effective for us at Copper. Um, but what, you know, kind of the context there is if, if you have a co-founder um, or a technical co-founder, a couple of you that, that are on the, you know, top ramen mac and cheese diet, um, you know, getting that MVP out the door, validating that there's a problem there on your own first, just dramatically, you know, increases your valuation because you just de-risked the business, right? And so from an investor perspective, they're looking at, you know, multitude of risks that exists in investing in early stage companies. And the further along you can get on your own, um, you know, you're able to de-risk that, which then in turn means, you know, you, you give up less of the company, um, uh, you know, as far as taking on that uh, investment, maybe a little bit later. Um, and so that's kind of a little bit of context on, on that. Now, once you exited your first company and you, did you immediately start building copper right after? Did you take some time? Have you had sort of a couple things in between? What, what was sort of like that transitionary period like for you? And, and what, what year was that about? Yeah. So, so uh, the exit happened two years ago um, and there was zero time <laughs> in between. Um, you know, my, my, my co-founder that had left a bit earlier and, and had a chance to go to Hawaii and hang out with his wife and do all those fun things. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, being a serial entrepreneur, I, we just came onto such a great opportunity that I felt like there was no time to waste. Um, and so, yeah, we, you know, I actually jumped, jumped right back in. Um, bring me, bring me through like the early, early, early day. When you said like you saw an opportunity, was it through, a conversation or something that like an insight that you took away? Was it an, a personal experience? Like what, what was compelling you so much so that you couldn't even, you know, uh, go to ba go, go to Hawaii. Like what, how did this kind of uh, aha moment come to life? Yeah, it came, it came by way of a couple different ways. Um, and, and one of the first ones was basically the bigger and bigger that we got, um, we actually started having banks approach us. So, you know, kind of, uh, big five banks and say, hey, have you ever thought of offering financial services to your user base of parent, millions of parents and teens? And for what that did for me was it sparked like, what are we missing here? Um, you know, you have like these really large institutions that have historically overlooked this pre-18 segment, but now they see that we've grown and they're coming to us and saying like, hey, what, you know, what lucrative deal can we give you to get access? And so it was really that kind of market moving type of feeling paired with just starting to dig into fintech, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I started having conversations with people. I started looking at what tools were available. And, you know, we had these conversations, which was like, man, like, you know, this technology that was previously protected by banks um, now exists so that we can build a better financial product that's non-predatory for this demographic. Um, and then really fundamentally was just seeing, you know, being in high schools and, and, and don't get me wrong, I think there's a place for home economics um, and baking cakes and the like, but like, I just realized that we had classrooms to do that, but we weren't teaching kids the basics between a debit and a credit card. Mm -hmm. Like there's something massively missing here. Um, and so kind of that was the why now for, for really getting the company started. Yeah. I, I mean, I found 
you know, and continue to find it absolutely fascinating how, um, you know, I'm, I'm now 33, uh, you know, we'll be turning 34 and many of my peer group uh, in their late twenties, early thirties are just now, including myself, picking up books for the first time, like rich dad, poor dad, or, just for the first time are understanding the difference between what an asset and a liability is. And now, you know, I, I'll speak for myself here that it's mostly a, a matter of just education and that it, if like it hadn't been brought up to you by a parent or a sibling or, you know, some kind of environment, most, you know, uh, uh, you know, elementary school, middle school environments are not, are not really teaching that, that aspect of it. So, um, that's, that's absolutely fascinating. And, and so now that, you know, copper is, is off the ground and, and, and what exactly, uh, is the manifestation of that, you know, where, where is the product currently? Do we currently have users using copper? Is it in a pre, you know, sort of like a pre-launch mode where, where exactly is copper? Yeah. Great question. So, you know, we spent a lot of time, obviously, um, I think or actually out of the gate, we did something kind of reverse. Um, I, I was pretty com confident in the product that we had built or that we could build to solve the problems that we wanted to solve. But what we did was, you know, I knew scale would be tremendously important for this business. And so we actually spent the last few months really doing some channel market fit, you know, really seeing if we could scale distribution of, of really this product to a team first and then building trust with uh, a parent and family. And so kind of fast forward to today, um, yeah, we have a fully fledged product and market. Um, over the last couple of months, we've onboarded well over 100,000 users onto the platform. Um, and so, you know, you can, you can find us in the app stores um, and, and really are, are, are starting to scale up. And, and at, at the end of the day, the most important thing is, you know, just starting to see great usage of the product that we want to build financial, you know, financial literacy and education and kind of those core tenets that, um, you know, banks historically obviously ignored um, in kind of that conversation we were having before. And so, and so what exactly is the experience like? Like if I'm, what you know, when you talk about the 100,000 users, are most of them made up of 13 year old, 15 year old, 16, 17, 18? Is it, you know, people in their 20s, 30s? I, I mean, obviously, we've been talking about teens and teen education. Um, so like, where does copper start? And then is the experience of copper built for that younger user? Or is it for their family or their parents or whomever is sort of like the guardian? What what's that experience like for someone going through the platform? Yeah, that's a really solid question. So the um, so, so the way that we think about that is historically, and I don't know if this is how it was for you, but for me, I got my first checking account and debit card when I needed to put gas in the tank, right? So that typically has happened around age 16, 17. Um, our median age right now um, and entry point is, is 14 years old, which really aligns well with how we think about our distribution through schools and ultimately really being able to provide really teens access to things that they just don't have access to today, right? And so where we see workarounds is where we see tremendous opportunity. Um, if you're under 18 today, you know, we see teens using their parents' information to set up a P2P app like Venmo or the Cash App, um, just because you, you legally can't have access. 
where we see teens using their parents' PayPal account um, so that they can do their side hustle or be a bedroom entrepreneur. And so we've really strategically placed ourselves really at the beginning of the consumer banking funnel really early on. And, you know, some people might say like, well, the revenue is later on. Um, I think what we've seen in this market is that anybody will try a new rewards card. Um, anybody will, uh, you know, try a new PFM app, but we really want to build trust within the family from 14 through college and beyond um, to really continue to, to, to be a part of those financial firms. And so, so for people that have never heard of copper or still don't, can't, can't visualize like what it's like, is it the equivalent of like, instead of me going to bank of America, I go to copper, you know, is instead of like, like, is that essentially copper is a alternative bank for teens specifically to bank of America and Wells Fargo and all of the main, you know, core banks. Exactly. And so how, um, what you just mentioned is our value proposition to parents. And that's how this connects is we ask parents, do you feel like your Bank of America or Chase or Big Five bank account is focused on teaching your teens about money? And the answer we get 100% of the time is no. And so that 100% is, is really the value proposition that we connect under. And we provide you know, a fully fledged FDIC insured bank account, um, you know, direct deposit, the access to peer-to-peer payments, and really the core of really learning about money through the product itself, um, which we have baked in rather than educational modules. So yes, it, it is uh, it is basically that first primary relationship um, that teaches teens about money. Got it. And then for those that are you know trying to visualize it, is is the educational piece done? I, I think you were just starting to mention it. Is it done through like in app? you know, sort of functionality or like in-app ad, uh, animations or is it through videos or like a, or some sort of like a teaching module? What, what, what's the way that people learn and, and educate themselves? Yeah, so we, we subscribe to the Learn By Doing Mantra, um, <clears throat> which really, you know, we spent a lot of time in this space. And so we talk a lot about Trojan horses into to different um, usage patterns and really you know, if we were just to throw a bunch of educational modules in the app, we know engagement would be low. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we've done is we really put ourselves at the intersection of what a teen wants and what they want access to um, and really creating pattern behavior through that usage versus just saying, hey, let me watch a video mm-hmm. um, and then try to digest the information. And Meaning so- like like the, the same model is like teaching someone to code by giving them like little coding modules as, instead of like watching a YouTube video. Exactly. Yeah. And so like an example of that is we've got a piece of functionality called teen salary. And basically all that that means is a core utility of the app today is instead of texting or calling mom and dad for money, you just send them a peer to peer request, let's say for 20 bucks. Mom says, cool. That's instantly available on the attached MasterCard. Well, we go to parents and we say, hey, look, last month you transferred your team $500 in these one off transfers. Um, So rather than doing that again this month, why don't you schedule that to come out every two weeks? And then from a teen perspective, they can set their savings mood, right? Chill is 5%, beast mode is 20%. And we can really start to condition, um, you know, just that basic base level of savings and budgeting. Mm -hmm. So no educational modules to go through, but really putting at the intersection of as a teen, I'm like, dude, get copper because my parents were regularly sending me money. 
And we really want to come in and, and teach that education just through the core usage. Talk to us about what it was like for you mentally going into the process of fundraising last year in March. You know, like while everyone is trying to figure out what they're going to do and how they're going to survive to then go into this mentality of like, wow, everyone of the VCs that I would normally talk to in their office, I'm now needing to figure out how to get funding or have meetings virtually. I'm assuming that's what it was like for you. Is that how you had to think about fundraising? Yeah, so um, it, it definitely has been a shift in, in how relationships are built. Um, I think, you know, for us, that was part of the reason why we really focused on like, you know, we didn't build a big waiting list for our product because we were just like, hey, look, like the proof's in the pudding here. And we need to go out and validate our distribution and show that we have a model that's working, right? And so before we went out to really raise, we went and did that so that we could bring that with us, right? And I know for, for other founders, there's varying degrees of doing that, right? Whether it's like the MVP of your product, maybe it's some design partners if you're doing something in, in kind of the B2B space to have like you know, some letters of intent, right? But people like actually using your stuff. Um, and so I think for us going into that and being uncertain of what the landscape would look like, because to your point, when you can go into a room and feel the energy of everybody and like right. have a coffee and, 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 you know, get, get, get that narrative across, it's much different. We kind of went into it with like, okay, we, we need to kind of have this actual, like real, this is what it does. This is the feedback we've gotten buttoned up. Did after you had had a couple reps under your belt, did you find yourself liking it more? No, not me personally. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> Just because uh, I don't know, there, there's something really cool about being a founder. And, and obviously there, there's a lot of VCs that will tell you your idea is not going to work. Um, but for those that do see the vision are excited. I mean, that's a really cool feeling, right? Mm-hmm. You have somebody that's sitting across the table that works at, ABC, like incredible venture fund that's invested in Uber and, and all these great things and, and is really highly regarded. And then to have them tell you like, wow, like this is a big opportunity, um, I think is like a nice shot in the arm as a founder, right? Because it's a thankless job and it's mostly no's, right? Um, that you get uh, on, on the fundraising trail. And so, yeah, not being in person for that, I think it is, is, it is kind of sucks. Um, you know, and, and at least that's my, my opinion. When you are uh, in the fundraising process and you're meeting so many different types of VCs, how should you think about like the value add, right? Because like a lot of the, obviously like VCs all have money, right? So it's like they can all help you with money, but should you be thinking about fundraising differently, like about the you know, the connections they have or the vertical they're in, or maybe you could talk a little bit about like how you strategized, you know, which VCs you wanted to go after and and how others can be more efficient in their search. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. Um, You know, I think in in thinking about the ideal partner, um, I think a couple of people have kind of talked about the analogy of like the speed dating thing. Um, I think, it becomes really clear depending on what space you're in um, when you're talking to somebody that like is truly interested in the space. Right. Um, and so, and, and like there's, there's varying levels of that. Right. Like, and it becomes really clear, you know, that what, whatever space you're in, when a, an investor kind of reaches out, 
um, and they provide like really good context about like why they're reaching out, right? Um, and I think from an investor perspective, at least as a founder, those are the things that get me excited to have a conversation, right? Is like you sent me an email and had shared and took the time to share like not not the list of you know pros about your firm, but like hey, here's who I am, um, and then here's how that relates to like what you're doing, and here's why I think you're what you're doing is interesting. Um, and so like from an inbound perspective, I think that that's always really cool to see. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think as a founder and thinking about, you know, the, the partner you want is really, you know, really quickly who has, you know, shares that vision. And I think ultimately, you know, is having conversations when you do have a few partners that you, you're excited about with other founders, right. And saying like, Hey, look, you know, what was it like working with so-and-so? Um, we've been super lucky at, at Copper to have a, a great board member and Jeff Entress from Pioneer Square Ventures, um, who's done this a long time and has just been, um, you know, a, a really great resource. And so I think like from a person to person perspective, you kind of know, like, do you like each other? Can you communicate well? And I think that that kind of gets, can get overlooked and I think is super important. Eddie, I want to make sure that, you know, those listening that say, oh, well, you know, I actually have a teenager like this, this product might be perfect for my teenager or, or, you know, I've got a sibling or a nephew. I want to make sure that we at least call out like who you would consider to be the ideal customer so that if they're listening to this, they know that copper is the right fit for them. Can you, you know, maybe just talk a little bit of like, you know, the right fit for copper is blank or, you know, or at least kind of go into a little bit around like what that person, uh, man, woman, you know, uh, old, young, maybe help us understand what uh, the perfect customer looks like so that they can be on the lookout. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, as a parent, um, if you have a, a teenage age kid um, that, you know, is, is uh, going into to high school or, or, or transitioning through high school, um, and you really feel like you're, you're giving them money constantly, but not teaching them anything about it. Um, those, you know, th that is a demographic we play in. Um, and so, you know, uh, really providing those teams, you know, their first primary bank account that is focused about teaching, you know, focused on teaching them about money really in that high school demographic is, is really who we build copper for, um, and who we're going to continue to make make the experience uh, great for over time. Eddie, what are you most excited about with Copper? You know, whether it's like right now with the fundraising or something you're building into the product, like what's most exciting for you right now? Yeah, I mean, what's most exciting is um, not to beat up on big banks, but uh, you know, I think we, we've been able to, in a really short amount of time, I think deliver such a su superior banking experience for teens. And, you know, as we think about continuing to build that, you know, we don't have the overhead that a brick and mortar bank has, right? And so we don't need to charge fees um, and we can reinvest that money, I think, in really doing what's best for the teen and the family. And so I'm super excited um, to keep delivering on, on really that promise of building a financially successful generation. And so, I mean, when I talk to customers um, and have talked to a lot lately that, I mean, literally you're like, hey, my only option before copper was going and loading money on prepaid debit cards at Walmart, right? Um, like th those are people we love to serve, right? And 
And so seeing that for me is honestly the most exciting thing about building this. And, and obviously the growth is great um, and seeing a lot of people tell other people about copper, but ultimately just seeing like that conversation for me is, is what's most exciting. That's awesome, Andy. And as far as the uh, the fundraising is concerned, you know, we do get a ton of VCs that listen to the show each week. And obviously, I'm sure some of them are going to be checking out Copper. Uh, is there anything that you want to say as far as like the round itself? Are you guys still looking uh, for any follow on checks or, or lead checks or anything that you uh, want to bring up on the show today? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're just getting going with early conversations. Um, and meeting, meeting some really great firms that, that we've had kind of the opportunity to, to build some relationships with, um, you know, the previous company and this one. Um, but yeah, always always interested to hear about great great firms that are, you know, kind of share our, our shared vision for this space um, and, and kind of see this as a massive inflection point. Awesome, Eddie. And where should they get in contact with you? Or where's the best place to reach you? Yeah, so just uh, our website is getcopper.com. And my email is just eddie, E-D-D-I-E, at getcopper.com. Eddie, thank you so, so much, man, for joining us today on Demo Day. I really appreciate you. And I'm excited to, uh, you know, release this episode and, and show founders, you know, what it takes to raise funding in today's, uh, in today's ecosystem. So thank you so much. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This is great. Awesome. All right, guys, thanks so much for tuning into Demo Day. I'm your host, Sean Goldbatten, CEO of Coefficient Labs. This is Demo Day. Peace, guys. Hey, hey.